Joseph, is having an orgasm proof of consent? Only if I'm enjoying it. <laughs> I know, that's so weird, because we just recently had a case where somebody said they had a non-consensual orgasm, which could happen. <laughs> Only in this business can you get this in a trial. I'm sorry, I'm losing it now. Say it again. So she, was, she didn't say it was a non-consensual orgasm because there's case law in that. She said that she was having zero positive experiences. No, she was in pain. She was My body out. spoke for me. Yeah. And that admits her body had an orgasm. She was in pain the whole time. In pain. Yeah. Well, sometimes pain, pain can be pleasure. Yeah. But that's but not case, what she described. Is what that is not about. what she described. <laughs> you know. And we'll get into there's it maybe nothing in another better episode. Than like, you know, de depending upon your, your, your culture, when you sit down for a family dinner, if you're Jewish, you sit down on a Friday night when you're exhausted and you talk about shit, or, you know, if you're a Christian and maybe it's a Sunday night or a Sunday afternoon or, you know, whatever culture you're in and when you sit Might down at dinner and you go, you know what I did this week? I learned that orgasm is not really indicative of pleasure. How'd you learn that? Well, the criminal trial. Right. So, the stupidity we deal with, eh? So interestingly, though, we were in trial and um, she admitted only in cross-examination that she had an orgasm. She apparently forgot about her second statement where she called police back and goes, you know what? I want to adjust my statement. She did not say in her second statement she had an orgasm. She said, I told him I was getting close. I was told I was getting close, but she had been very consistent in saying that she was not enjoying the experience. And so when cross so, all right, to, to orient you, because you might get disoriented by my laughing at this, but Diana came out with a great line, which is true from a case we recently just won, where the complainant had said her encounter with her client, which was a sexual assault, that it was really unenjoyable from the moment she was with my client, uh, from the beginning of the encounter all the way to the even time the conversation she left the was unenjoyable. Yeah, she didn't even like talking to him. It was dry. It wasn't flowing. I didn't want to be there. But she took her pants off. I was going to leave. But she took her pants off. <laughs> yeah. And when our client took his off, she watched. She watched him take off his entire set of clothing, so he's completely naked. She goes like, "Yeah, I'm going to get back in the bed." <laughs> So why we can't apply common sense as to how a, a victim, true victim, behaves. Mm -hmm. She also forgot that she got she on was, top of him. She apparently forgot was she was about to leave. <laughs> and, kiss, <laughs> and kissing him. You know, so let's orient you into this because it's important. So we, we just finished a case that was, you know, an interesting case because it was different than what we normally have as allegations. Because in cross-examination, we were able to bring out that the complainant had admitted that she'd said to her client during this horrible ordeal, I'm getting close, I'm getting close. And then actually admitted, Which is encouragement. Which is encouragement and would give, would reasonably uh, give the impression to our client or to another person that she was enjoying the conduct. Um, and then admitted in my cross-examination that she actually climaxed. And then in re-examination had the audacity to suggest, well, you don't have to enjoy it to climax. And then the whole question upon submissions was, is an orgasm evidence of consent. You only get this in this business. You only, you only get this insanity in criminal law where you parse out every human movement in such minutia. And I tried in written submissions to say intimate sexual contact 
remains very much an innately human experience. Within this context, an artificial approach to analyzing such a basic human experience in a criminal trial does not serve to better understand the trial evidence. Rather, a combination of what we know about how humans interact in such an intimate context along with guiding legal principles and knowledge will better assist a trier of fact than rigid, sanitized approaches. So, <laughs> these people out there... And, and why is it we're writing this? Because the main argument in this trial is that because they didn't know each other well, our client should have obtained verbal consent throughout the entire encounter. Yeah. And so, that is not the law in Canada. Yeah, so what we're trying to get across in this episode is to, is to talk to you a little bit about two cases that we recently ran, and we won. And um, not that we're tooting our own horns, but we are. Uh, but it's because we well, understand. we have won. We've won everything. Case. Literally <laughs> everything. Yeah. Literally everything. So if you're viewing this as part of our, on the website or the podcast, we have won them all together. And we've done a great job. I mean, knock on wood, it continues. Yeah, but we work hard at the cases. You never know. And as we say in every episode, it's not a joke. These are serious cases. You need experience and you need knowledge and you need the ability to work together as a team to try and come up with this. But, you know, these are the absurdities that we get in these cases. And But the very next day, after we finished our, like, you know, because we had to wait to do closing submissions or whatever, yeah. but this evidence comes out that she's, you know, had this orgasm and so on. <clears throat> right after the evidence was completed, the Ontario Court of Appeal had a decision. Yeah, it's great. In which they actually said that the complainant admitted she had an orgasm doesn't undermine her credibility. But it was very different circumstances. Correct, because the complainant, that, that's absolutely correct. So the complainant in that case was um, was fair in saying, and we won't go into the circumstances, but it was with a massage a, therapist. A public decision. But. Yeah, but, you know, had said that um, I was embarrassed and ashamed of having an orgasm during a sexual assault it was because it was with a massage therapist and, and, and it became, to a point, enjoyable. And she orgasmed, but the reality was she was ashamed of it and, and there was a client. And there was no consent. Relationship. She, there was she no was relationship. There, she wasn't on a date. She was there for a, a professional massage. Correct. So that's legitimate. That's a good decision. But what the Crown tried to twist in our case is that somehow that you don't have to enjoy yourself to have an orgasm. And it was somehow consistent with the evidence of the complainant in our case, where she said everything was painful, blacking out from the pain, and it was awful from the beginning to the end, be, which was not it, the it truth. It would make it impossible to have an orgasm if you were in that state. I agree. But that's the absurdity to which you know this case went. And what, what is even more troubling is if you, again, take a scenario of human experience where people... I'm creaking again, eh? It's not my stomach, at least, this time. If you hear my stomach gurgle, like in a previous episode, it's because I'm on we intermittent really fasting. We work really long hours. And we we work really long hours. I'm on intermittent fasting because I'm trying to get back to pre-COVID weight, even with the assistance of my lovely wife. You look beautiful. Who's an occupational therapist and a personal trainer, and I'm still not getting there. Maybe just I because I'm happy. I appreciate your beauty. You appreciate my fatness? You're always beautiful to me, Justin. Thank you so much. Okay, so I need touching you... Touching moment over. <laughs> I need you to outline, speaking of touching moments... Yeah. <laughs> what this case meant. That's what she said. That's I the need that closer one. to me. That's what she said. <laughs> Set this up so that the people understand 
what we were dealing with in a law in, firm where we deal with sexual assault cases all the time this is the funniest button to have in the office i need to use it during a trial when she answers when when the complaint answers a question and it helps me that's what she said okay so just do me the favor to set this up for everybody who's watching what this case was about like you know they met on uh you know they met they started messaging and then they just had a date and how absurd it is to say you really need verbal consent because that's where everything is going right and the crown is pushing this type of a very argument. dangerous proposition please yeah. explain so um back in uh so I'm trying to remember when it was like the beginning of 2019 there was a trilogy of decisions released from the yes. supreme court um called barton goldfinch and rv this canadian supreme court of canada and in the barton decision the moment i read it i knew that this was going to be dangerous um, they said testing the waters is not a, a sufficient, reasonable step to gaining consent. And what context does that happen within? So just everybody understands. Testing the waters. So we currently have a, um, an ability to obtain consent, even confirmed in Barton, through words or actions. Right. Right? Right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm trying to fix that. Right. <laughs> right, right, right. No, it's good to check. Um, so we're still, it's, it's been confirmed over and over again. Conduct and actions are still a form of consent. You don't require verbal consent. Right. So in a situation where two people may not be familiar with each other, similar to the case that we had, where our client had met the complainant, they'd communicated a few times over social media, and then made arrangements for a date and then eventually the date wound up at our client's apartment and they spent some time talking and hanging out and then watching a movie and eventually intimate contact occurred which was not the most invasive contact you know i i think we can say on our podcast you know it didn't involve intercourse or something of that nature but you know they had intimate contact that led to our sexual assault allegation that we have to defend but these were two people that were just getting to know each other at a very early stage of dating. Right. So in the Barton decision, and this is a very unique set of facts in the Barton decision. Right. Where um, they end up saying that where you're not familiar with each other, you don't have an extensive history of interacting and learning how people communicate, communicate consent because they clarified consent isn't just consent, blah, blah, blah. It's, it has to be communicated in some way including actions as well as words right but the testing the waters is a dangerous testing the dangerous waters thing. is dangerous because one of the ways that you can prove that you had a reasonable step is and it's normally guys who are accused of sexual assault they can say she grabbed my crotch right so how's that not testing the waters so your communicated consent means a woman can sexually assault you without verbally communicating and that's a sign of consent. Good point. But in this case, what's interesting is, so if you're the guy in this circumstance and you decide to touch an intimate part of the body, you try to slide your hand down the shirt towards the breasts, or you try and slide it down the back of the pants towards the buttocks. And if you go further, it could be testing the waters, but it's a no-no. You're going beyond testing the waters and that's that's wrong in law and that's where that term testing the waters where it goes too far and can result in a sexual assault because you don't have 
verbal consent or communicated consent, that's where we get the mischief of that language from the Supreme Court of Canada. And it's very deadly. That language was cited by, I'm not going to name her, it was cited by a law professor who believes that almost all heterosexual sex is oppressive. Yeah, so we've said this a number of times and we can't say it enough because it's like driving us f***ing crazy, right? F***ing crazy. That almost all... I I, I might drink right now. Hetero... Oh, oh, I'll fill that up. Heterosexual sex (laughs) is oppressive by very... By its very... by its very nature and dynamic. Because Do you men get are that? stronger and they're... And know, f***ing credit attorneys ask that question. They always ask that question in the trial. It happened in this trial. What's your microphone? Sorry, What's I am, but they said, you know, you're bigger and stronger than the complainant. In fact, in reality, he wasn't actually bigger, but I yes, loved, he's stronger. One of our guys was actually, it was suggested to him that he was in, in this recent one with the, the orgasm. It was like, you're bigger and stronger. He goes, I don't think that's true. And he goes, well, we've seen both of you, her on Zoom. I can't tell you how many people meet me on Zoom who think I'm short and I'm almost 5'11". <laughs> yeah, our, our client, like, look, we're not going to debate strength or, you know, skeletal systems and muscular systems, but the reality, who is a very slight, like, guy. And, but, it, but, but what was the import of this that was important was this was a trial. You could knock him over with a feather. You, know, you could. <laughs> where two people had met, decided to arrange a date, and eventually wound up at our I wanted to apartment. knock him over with a feather once or twice. <laughs> you came to like him very much. But anyways, you know, it, it was a situation where, you know, they, the evening organically evolved and they, they, they went to, a, you know, ultimately his bedroom and had intimate contact. And she was unhappy because at the end of the night, her client said something that was silly and she was upset. But it turned into a sexual assault allegation. Although I do think it was a legitimate question, actually. <laughs> True. But it was... You know, it was it was not justifying of relabeling it as a sexual assault of her client being charged of having to go through the system. But she says, after I left, I started thinking that I wasn't okay with everything. Right. So in the evidence, the complainant had specifically said that um, as I left, once it was all over, I started thinking about it, and that's when I wasn't okay with it, mm-hmm. and and that still factored into a charge being laid which should give you some indication of how dangerous it is now to have human interactions because sometimes afterward you can decide that what you did before was no longer agreeable, yet you can't give advanced consent. Most important uh, thing to say right now, it is not a rape myth that women regret, you know, having had sex and make a, a false accusation. It actually sometimes happens. It's only a rape myth to say that women always do it for a certain reason or commonly do it for a different you know for that reason this is a case where the complainant actually admitted to having regretful thoughts afterwards absolutely correct you know that's that's a brilliant point and you you actually brought out a number of episodes before one of the uh, recent studies about why people create and have uh these are things they've admitted to with legitimate false allegations there are 10 known reasons including uh i don't even know myself right so it doesn't really count as a reason let's say there's nine reasons those are sometimes true the the myth part comes in when you say women commonly lie about rape because blah right 
what we always do Which and we what we do, what we do at every single trial is say, let's not think about what a real victim would do. And please judge, don't do that yourself. We want to think about the evidence about this particular person. We want to ground it in their evidence and their character. And that's really important. And so, you know, what came out from this case, which is why I guess we're talking about this during this episode, um, is because it was so incredibly scary that um, you had a human interaction between people where somebody was saying, well, I'm getting close, I'm getting close, and then climaxed. And it got reverse engineered into her not consenting to anything, that everything was completely unenjoyable. And that the suggestion was that there should have been not only verbal consent, but at one point the person slipped, the crown attorney slipped and said enthusiastic consent. Right. And that is an insight into where dangerously we could go if we allow this to happen in our justice system. Yes means yes. It doesn't have to be enthusiastic. That's what she said. <laughs> yes means yes. That's what I'm saying. It doesn't have to be enthusiastic. Not at all. You're not enti- Like, that's asking women to be over the top ridiculous. In the same way that it's just like expecting a guy to say, is it okay if I kiss you? Is almost an assured way of making sure you don't get kissed. Maybe. It, it, you know, it could be pretty hot in certain circumstances, but leaving that aside. But Can I kiss you down there? Maybe. Yeah, that's what he asked that. He asked. That's what she said. He asked at various <laughs> steps of the ways, and she agreed to that. But the, here's the danger, and this is what. This is the whole point of this episode. This is not the first case that we have come across with cross-examination of our client where two people are generally not familiar with each other but on a date where actually the sexual contact was absolutely consensual. Absolutely consensual. And the suggestion is it would have been better in the circumstances where you don't know each other than testing the waters that it should be verbal consent. Communicated consent should be verbal. And then it slipped out in this case about enthusiastic. And and and, and we have to get His this across. His own case law said that it is not the law in Canada that you require right. verbal consent. The argument was completely undermined by the case law, but that's not what scared me. What scared me so much and scared you was where we are going in cross-examination, where we're going in these cases, and the government lawyers are prepared to ask these questions and then make submissions on that basis. Where that's the- where we got to be careful. That's where we got to be very careful where we're going to go as a society and we've said it before we're ruining ruining how humans interact and we're letting the government into our bedroom so in this particular case where two people were just where it came out where it came out into the evidence it just drove me nuts this person actually said to me i didn't enjoy everything the conversation was awful the whole interaction was awful. there's nothing i enjoyed i didn't want to be there i was going to leave and then under cross-examination is as if it was a different witness i know Right? Totally different story. No, I wanted to go into his bedroom because I was enjoying the evening, because I wanted to continue the conversation, because I wanted to go in and talk to him more. And then what and it, suggested, the fact that she agreed with you when you suggested these things were true, apparently adds to her credibility. Well, that's a very good point too, because the Crown tried to say, because, because of my generally brilliant cross-examination, and I was, was able to corner the complainant, thank you, but corner the complainant on evidence that's real, and that she had to admit this stuff, her uh, her answers to me in the affirmative of my suggestions, in other words, my cross-examination... Readily agreeing she lied. 
added to her credibility. I mean, I don't know how to get this across in this podcast to try and establish how f***ing dangerous this is and how you have to be astute to what these issues are because this is where we're going as a society. And God forbid our politicians endorse this in the upcoming elections and want more policies in place and change legislation so that we're going to get to an area of having verbal consent and get to an area where testing the waters is truly illegal. Because we're all then. But we also know if you actually testify that you got verbal consent for every button you undo, you will not be believed. Elaborate on that because that's a very, very good point. I was very disturbed, um, as brilliant as the decision was in this um, I, 2017 case, I think, of the three, three Toronto cops. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Justice Molay, she wrote a brilliant decision addressing the hashtag believe thing, how it's not a principle in law. Well done. But the reason she didn't believe the testimony of a police officer, who you would think of all people would be more informed on the law of consent, when he said that he obtained verbal consent at every stage, she disbelieved him. So we are demanding. Think about that. We're demanding. But think about that. So one police officer who was in an intimate encounter had actually asked for consent at certain stages. That wasn't believed because it was too perfect. Mm-hmm. Now, there is some good case law since then. Justice Chauko, my... Your favorite, with good reason. I was going to say future husband, but I know he's married. I think he's so. taken. Yeah, he's taken. No, but it's brilliant. I mean, it's br- <laughs> he's and absolutely brilliant. <laughs> he's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, frankly, his his article on doubt... And I think it's the JC decision doubt about doubt. from, like, yeah, from 2020 or 2021, but JC, which we cite quite often. Um, so one of the things is, like he said, it was a it was a an error of law for the judge to disbelieve the accused when he said he sought consent at every stage because it was too politically correct. That's a brilliant point. So thank God for that commentary in that case, and and his I honor did. I would love to see Justice Pacheco on the Supreme Court. But I would miss him from the Court of Appeal because he's running so many amazing decisions. I agree. And if you think we're his fan club, we are a mini fan club. I am. I am. But there are are a lot of other... Diana Pacheco. There are a lot of... Stop. (laughs) There are a lot of other great judges on the Court of Appeal. But his his reasoning and his writing is, is outstanding. And it's doing a very good job of trying to direct trial courts into how to deal with these issues. But, but for that commentary from him in that case, one would believe that an accused could be disbelieved because their asking they for consent was too perfect. Affirmative consent expectations. Right. And, and that's an important point to make because that's where prosecutors want us to go. That's where certain interest groups want us to go. That's where certain advocates uh, uh, about sexual assault want us to go. And we're getting f-ing close. We're getting f-ing close. Especially, it's really dangerous. Especially if you're on a first date. And the reality is... I'm s- I so got to get WD for this f-ing chair. I know. I, no, I... What's the first thing I did when I came to this law firm? You put oil in the door? Yeah, the bathroom door squeaked and I brought WD for it in. Thank you. I'm a fixer, girl. <laughs> well, you, you help fixing right. with these cases, but... But again, like just just one more minute, right. okay, and and then we'll end it. But because the other thing was a general misunderstanding about honest but mistaken belief in consent. Let's just talk about oh, this right. for a moment. Oh, right, that's so Because again, this may be a bit boring, but just just one more thing, okay? 
Because again, if you're interested in our podcast and we're going to ask you to like, subscribe, share, give a thumbs up, or send a really helpful Leave comment. comments. You know, just don't tell me to f*** off or something like that. But what, and what, don't don't tell him that he cuts me off because ah shut up. But anyways, <laughs> just kidding. It's a joke. Um, that's what she said. That's what she said. That's the weirdest version of that. That's what she said. That's a better one. Right. So let's just think about this for one second. There was another case that we won on a very surgical defense about honest mistaken belief in consent. We knew so clearly important. that there was no consent. It's a, a vital guy. decision. Wonderful client. Wonderful guy. Yeah. Okay. High profile client, super guy. Little puppy dog. I know. He seems like that. He's a really so just adorable. a genuine guy where there is just, you know, and you raised I'm so a, happy for him. You raised a really good point. In Canada, sexual assault can go from grabbing somebody, forcing them down on the bed, forcing uh, intercourse, and doing all sorts of horrible things to just Mainly touching. raping them. Yeah. It's always in one of those. It's a just touching a breast. Okay. So just that's. sliding his hand inside her shirt. Right. That's a sex assault as well. We have a very broad spectrum under one title, one label. Where she admitted she gave him mixed signals. Correct. But let's not... That's not so much my issue, but it was a very surgical defense where he understood after he did what he did, based upon their prior conduct and, and dynamic of their relationship, where there were mixed signals and there was a lot of emotional and, and physical affection exchange, that he made a mistake at a certain point and did something he shouldn't have done, which was touch her breast. And they were all drunk one night after a party, but we ran a defense of honest but mistaken belief in consent. Not Solely that there was any consent. Admitting it happened. Admitting it happened, and then it just and did. she did not consent. We it was very clear. She, it was clear. Afterwards. She bit him so hard he had a massive bruise on. And his he said, "The moment that happened, I knew she didn't consent. I'm so f-ing sorry." He apologized, and he still got charged. And everybody wanted him in jail. Wanted him to be a sex offender. Lost his f-ing career. Lost his f-ing career. Lost his f-ing career because of this, okay? And he won at trial. We succeeded. And he was a great witness because he told the f-ing truth. And the judge That's was he excellent had to do. and gave a great, a great judgment. But here's the important factor, okay? There was a, there was a palpable misunderstanding and maybe an intentional um, twisting of the law that you cannot advance a defense of honest, mistaken belief and consent. So you read the signals wrong and you do something. And it's not that invasive, it's bad, but it's not that invasive. You read the signals wrong and you do something, but the Crown is gonna suggest that you you are guilty because your facts don't match up exactly with the facts of the complainant. Error of reality. Right, but, 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 but the thing is, you. I don't know how to get this across without going deep into the law. Well, but I, can, I can explain it. I explain think. it, because it really, it angered me so much in this case. So, honest but mistaken belief is, in, in this case, sometimes it's an alternative argument, but in this case, we're saying, it was we know argument. she didn't, She we know she didn't consent. She bit him so hard, it was clear she didn't consent. Yeah. Um, so, error of reality to put forward a defense of honest but mistaken belief um, has to say, ha, has to assess itself first if what he says is true, right? Assume it's true. Based on his evidence. Based on his evidence. And so quite often we're seeing some misinterpretation of how this goes on um, in terms of whether or not we can advance this, this defense. They say, there's no error of reality because she said blah. Right. 
it doesn't matter what she said. In order to put forward the defense, you have to, first of all, say, if what he's saying is true, is there an error of reality to it, right? So an example of no error of reality was in a, a recent case we reported on in one of our newsletters where the guy said, I was at a wedding party. I didn't know her. She didn't know me. We ended up in the bathroom. We had no conversation. I f***ed her. Right. There was, there was nothing there. That. So according to his own evidence, there's no error of reality. There's to, no real foundation. To yeah, because so there was no conversation even, right? Right. So that would be a case where it's like, and then you can also say, when you get to trial, if you believe her and their versions are diametrically opposed, then his, his defense will fail. But it's still available until you come to a finding of fact that you believe her. This is really important. And, and, it is, and, and, and it's and, subtle. It's, it, subtle. it's, it's a very difficult. subtle, important thing in Canadian law. And we're going to end on this. But the reason we're doing this is because it's misunderstood and it can lead to wrongful convictions. So what's really important is what, what has been pushed in prosecutions is unless the accused evidence matches up with the complainant, this can't be advanced. Therefore, there's no air of reality to it. Because they assume the complainant is telling the truth. Right. And the air of reality comes from assessing the evidence of the accused, what the state of mind is, and then you can cobble together facts and still decide credibility on issues or reliability and still find and an honest mistake of belief and consent. You can believe some part or none of somebody's evidence. Correct. And that's a principle in law. But they forget that when it comes to sexual assault case law. They forget that when it comes to an honest mistake in belief they, and consent. They and they forget about the fact that People are human beings and shit happens. And sometimes you read it wrong, but you're not guilty of a sexual assault. But God forbid that should ever be a defense. And you gotta keep fighting for this because we can't let the law get to that stage where human nature and human actions, which are not criminal, get criminalized. People, and the way people actually engage in sexual activity, which is what Justice Mole, bless her, acknowledged normally, not to say whether or not the, the guy in that case actually did engage in active ongoing, you know, you know, communication. He did. He, he engaged. Whether he, or not he did. In that case, he testified very clearly there was active communication and he the did it every step of the way. The fact that he wasn't believed. The fact that he wasn't believed because he did the thing he's expected to do has to tell us a lot about what we're going to criminalize in our society. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we don't have the benefit of the And exact why always the guy? Why isn't it, why can the guy only get consent when the woman grabs his crotch without asking for permission? Look, I made the I, I made the comparison in a case I had, which was the campsite comparison, where the complainant had gone to the other campsite, sat on the lap of a guy, started kissing him, and then I asked her, you know, did you obtain his consent? She looked at right. me like I was from Mars. I know, and and actually, judges sometimes go, what? No, the, not sometimes, <laughs> almost always. And, 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 you know, the judge in that police officer case, she's a there very good judge. There is nothing in Canadian law that says that only women can test the waters. Well, there is nothing in Canadian law Because none law of us will f***ing complain about it. Right? We're like, bring it on! Like, but, yeah, but leaving that That's aside. Because you, you all get into physical fights, and the, you know, to teach you how to No, but the, the reality is there's, there's a gender. complain about The stuff. reality is there's a gender bias. That's well, the reality. Well, if want to be equals to men, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about that for one second. In the case that we did with respect to the, um, 
uh, the one where they were on their, their really their first date. You can't ask to be considered an equal to men while also saying you're always constantly a victim and have no agency. That's the point. So in our case, I had asked the complainant because she That's said... That's why I get so mad at these so-called feminists. They're not feminists at all. But, but it's not feminism. No. Feminism is about equality, yeah. equal power, equal everything. This is about robbing yourself of agency. But in this case, I specifically cross-examined the complainant. Because she had said in her statement, he had done things to make me comfortable so that I would agree to what he wanted to do. Stop for one second. Okay? That's not illegal. If you convince somebody to be comfortable with what you want to do sexually, that means they want to do it. It's an admission you agreed to it. But what it is, sadly... Agreed. Agreed. We had to switch from asking, did you give consent or did you agree? Well, we had to switch. Consent's a legal term, and, and you use language very well, which is which is you know brilliant. No, but no, but really, when you use consent, it's a legal term, and consent, when it's defined, is an agreement, a voluntary agreement between two parties about a sexual act. So we just talk about agreement. But what but what bothered me so much about this was when the complainant had said in her statement specifically that he had done things to make me feel comfortable, so I would agree to what he wanted to do. That's not a crime. No. That's not a crime. That's, she agreed. She agreed, right? And every step of the way in evidence, what was trying to happen was externalizing her consent to his manipulation, which was a which was an absolute uh, blasphemy when it came to what we're talking about did actually happen and how she consented to it. And it and and this is where we're heading. We got to be very careful about. You know, somebody having normal human interactions during a moment that sometime afterwards she just not, regretted. Because if we're not, people then can't it's interact not anymore. Safe for men to have relations with women anymore, or women, or women, it's not safe anymore. I, look, frankly, I think it's not safe anymore for young adults when they're out. You got to be very careful. I, you know, we talk about this in university settings. We talk about about the definition of consent. We talk about it definitions in university about, it, you know, if you're drinking, you can't give consent. No, it's not yeah. safe anymore. One it's drink, not safe because everything is so anything sanitized. You anything you drink apparently makes you a child who can't take responsibility for a single Yeah, there was that case about Perrier. Just kidding. Until next time. I'm empty. That's good. Okay, you can take the rest. We of gotta time. go to work. That's what she said. See you next time.